Good morning and welcome to Taproot. Um, my name is Tracy and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. Um, we remain standing while we read scripture, if possible. And when I finish reading, we'll, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And as a church, we prayerfully respond with, speak, Lord, your servants here. The scripture this morning is Matthew 23, verses 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and we'll pray. Father, this uh, is a hard word for us. Um, please open our hearts to receive what you would have for us, and please empower Mike's voice to speak your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Tracy. Well, good morning, family. How are we? Good. It's good to uh, be back in the taproot pulpit this morning. It's been a couple of couple of weeks. If you're a guest, uh, welcome. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here, and uh, as a church, we exist to know Jesus and make him known, so that's our hope and prayer uh, here this morning as we continue to work through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, just a couple of announcements for us before we get going. First off, um, I just wanted to continue to highlight um, just a need that we have kind of put out recently, a need for greeters, so we want to we want to be more hospitable as a, as a church, and I think one of the ways that we can do that is by posting people at various doors uh, to welcome people into the gathering space. And so if you're interested in being a greeter, could you please, after the gathering, go to the uh, welcome table back there and sign up? We have a couple of people who are signed up. Um, I'll say I'm thankful for the people who are signed up on there, but there are also people who do lots of other things. <laughs> And so this might be a, a space if, you know, if you've been with Taproot for a little bit and you're just kind of looking for a, a space to step in um, and serve a little bit on a, on a Sunday morning, this might be a good spot for you. And so, um, yeah, if you're able to be friendly and smile, hang out with your kids, pass out some bulletins, it'd be a great, great spot. Uh, so that's, that's that. Um, I also wanted to point out, this isn't in my notes, but I wanted to point out because I'm, I'm recognizing it. We have our, the nursing mom's room is like, look at that, glass. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So thanks for the, the guys who put that all together and, um, and my wife uh, for heading up that team. And we have, we have that space that's available for moms and babies. And so just continue to reiterate, uh, if you have little kiddos that like to run around this space, uh, tell them not to run through there. A bunch of people will be surprised. <laughs> um, so that's that. Uh, the second thing, I guess this is the third thing now, we're getting really close to Easter. Yeah. So uh, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, um, and then here, here's what we're planning to do this year. So we're going to take a three-week pause from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to head into 1 Corinthians 15, and what we're going to do is we're going to do just a short little series that we're calling Victory Through Christ, and in this series, uh, we're just going to look at what the Gospel is, the reality of the resurrection, and life in light of the resurrection. So that's going to be the next three Sundays for us. Uh, we'll also have a Good Friday gathering on Friday evening the 7th. That'll be here at 6 p.m. And that evening will be an evening of just focusing on the cross. 
um, and embracing just a posture of lament and grief together as we remember Jesus' crucifixion. So uh, please do plan for that. And then our Easter gathering will be Sunday the 9th at 1030, just as usual. It's going to be just a regular family church gathering. So all the kiddos will be in here with us. It's going to be an awesome time. Uh, You know, if you like to wear nice clothes, Easter's a great day to do that. I'll probably wear more than a t-shirt. That's my plan. Worse, buttons and collar. Um, And then after Easter, so on April 23rd, we'll return to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to spend about five or six weeks working through Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which I'm thrilled about. Can't wait. Super excited. After that, we're going to take another pause from Matthew, because by then we'll be to the summer. Um, And we're going to head into our summer sermon series, which at this point, by God's grace, Lord willing, we're going to work through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we're headed here in the next couple of weeks and months. And then the last thing I wanted to highlight here is just uh, a reminder about our corporate prayer times. So we, we try to gather together corporately to pray regularly. We do that on Sunday mornings at 9.50. And so if you uh, would like to j- join with us in this sanctuary to, to pray for our gathering, pray for our city, um, among other things, that would be a great opportunity for you to join us in prayer. And then also, we pray every first Wednesday of the month as a church at uh, Pray First. And so this coming uh, Pray First is on the 5th, yeah, April 5th at 6.30. Join us, we'll pray, we'll worship through song. Child care is provided, it's going to be an awesome time. So with that, let's get into our text this morning. So um, I'll let you know, I'm trying, I'm trying something new. Um, a couple weeks ago, I got to preach down in San Diego uh, uh, neighbor's church, uh, which we supported for a number of years. And one of the things that they had me do was manuscript my sermon because they had a teaching team, and I've never manuscripted a sermon. So it was really, really hard. Uh, but then I tried to preach off of it, and it was actually, I rather enjoyed it. And so I'm trying it again, um, which will probably be really helpful for us this morning. I mean, we'll see. Um, we were uh, at a conference the past few days, which I'll talk about in a little bit here. Um, so we'll see how everything comes together this morning, but just want you to know, trying something new. Cool? Here we go. All right, so this morning, uh, we're wrapping up our time in the section of the gospel known as the woes of Jesus, Matthew chapter 23. And we wanted to, to slow down, we've intentionally slowed down here in Matthew chapter 23 for a few reasons. Uh, first, it's just too much to handle in one or two sermons, right? You read Matthew 23 and it's just... It's overwhelming. And you could, you could kind of, you know, breeze through it, but I don't think we would capture then what we'd really want to capture. Uh, I spoke with a, a pastor a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was down in, in California, and he had been working through Matthew 23, and he's like, yeah, we did, it. We did Matthew 23 in one Sunday, and it was way too much. <laughs> it was just, uh, so I was like, oh, I'm glad we're slowing down. Anyways, we just wanted to give more time to it, so that's what we're doing. Second, the woes of Jesus on several levels speak to many of the problems that are pervasive in the church today, right? Jesus has been calling out the hypocritical religiosity of the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrisy which is often pervasive in my life and I assume in yours as well. My guess is we've been challenged by this text. And our constant reminder through these woes has been that we would let them wash over ourselves first before we go pointing the finger at someone else, right? Let them wash over ourselves first before we go pointing the finger at someone else. It's so easy to think of those people who we think need to hear these sermons, these woes, but then we miss the point of Jesus and actually end up placing ourselves in the position of the scribes and Pharisees, ourselves. And so this morning, we're working through this final woe, and in it, Jesus essentially calls out the primary issue, the issue that captures all of the other issues. It's the primary issue that is plaguing the leadership of Israel. It's the the issue that lies underneath of the surface. And so what's the issue? Well, I think it's pride. I think if we were to to look at this text and and just assess what's the issue beneath the issue here, it's, it's pride. I think this is what our text shows us this morning, is that pride has led the scribes and the Pharisees to this place of being unable to hear and see the reality of their situation. It's pride that has caused these leaders to stop their ears and close their eyes. And this issue, it makes sense, right, in light of what Jesus has been saying throughout 
Matthew chapter 23, and also in light of a few of his parables earlier in the gospel of Matthew. So just think with me really quickly back to a long time ago, Matthew chapter 7, right? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's manifesto for living the Christian life. He's giving instructions for how to live out life as disciples. And he ends the sermon uh, with this uh, picture, so to speak, this parable. In verse 24 of Matthew 7, he says, Therefore, notice the emphasis. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise person who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But, again, the emphasis, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. So what's the issue that Jesus is warning about there in Matthew chapter 7? Well, I think it's clear that hearing his words and obeying them, right? Jesus' clear teaching is that there is a, a correct way to hear his words, and that way is a hearing that results in obedience. So this is what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to hear in a way that results in obedience, It's hearing that equates to living out what he teaches and thus experiencing a life of flourishing because the way of Jesus is the way of a flourishing life, But there's also a way of hearing that doesn't result in flourishing. This kind of hearing hears what Jesus says but doesn't act in obedience, and the results are thus catastrophic, That's what the the parable in Matthew 7 illustrates for us. Think also with me to another parable in the Gospel of Matthew, the sower parable in Matthew chapter 13. Turn turn back there with me, if you will. And I just want to read, uh, I'll, I'll read quickly here, verses 1 through 17. Listen to what these words are. Remember, Jesus is, is teaching in Matthew 13, he's teaching about what the kingdom is like. He says this, on that day, Jesus went out, of the house and was sitting by the sea, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down and while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables saying, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. It grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. And he goes on, and uh, you have this description of what the parables are for. The disciples came up and asked, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, it's an interesting answer. He says, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has more will be given to them, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear but didn't hear them. Now, Jesus, I think, of course, is not just talking about physically hearing and physically hearing. There's obviously something deeper, something under the surface here that Jesus is getting at. What is that? Is everything okay? I hear, like, banging. (laughs) The whole point, though, of this parable, then, is about hearing the word of God, and in particular, the words of Jesus, 
right? We see here in Matthew 13 that the person who produces fruit is the person who hears and understands the words of Jesus. And I would say it's because of humble discipleship to Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a bit. As Jesus goes on to explain the parable, though, he uses the the language of listening but not understanding and looking but never perceiving. The language and warnings of that parable are very similar to what is happening here in Matthew chapter 23. And I think it simply brings us to the point that this is where Matthew has been wanting to take us all along. Matthew, Matthew is highly and intentionally structured and how he has put together this gospel. And so he's bringing us to this point, and he's tying all of these pieces together for us. Matthew 23, is, it's a shift in the gospel, right? We're, we're heading into Jesus's final discourse, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, right? But you see, Matthew's gospel is structured to reveal to us two paths. We've talked about this all throughout, right? Uh, the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness. And Matthew wants us to see clearly that the way of the scribes and Pharisees, though outwardly looking pretty good, is ultimately foolishness. But to the contrary, the way of Jesus is the way of wisdom. It's the way of the flourishing life. We could call it the abundant or eternal life as Jesus does elsewhere, for example, in the Gospel of John. So I think the reality is this, is that for one reason or another, the way that many in the church hear Jesus is actually the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees do. That we hear what is said, but we pridefully assume that he isn't talking to us, or that because of our superior morality, we're good. This, however, is the epitome of Phariseeism. It's the epitome of religion. And so what we see in our text this morning is that the scribes and Pharisees have come to the end of their opportunity, right? Um, The warnings have been given, repentance has been refused, judgment is coming. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's how he's summing up uh, this teaching. And so I think the question of our text this morning is uh, this, the challenge for us, if you will, is to assess whether or not we're killing the prophets or hearing the prophets, And either way, the invitation for us is to repent and turn to Jesus. And so we're going to work out the rest of this time here with three points this morning. Um, First two will be longer. The last one will be quite brief. Uh, Number one, killing the prophets. Number two, hearing the prophets. And then number three, being and becoming the prophets. This is the only slide I have this morning, just so you know. So you can just look at it all morning and know where we're going. (laughs) All right, killing the prophets. Listen again to the woe of Jesus, verse 29 through verse 32. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, I love the way that Tracy read this. Is Tracy, where are you at, Tracy? She did a good job, like that kind of like mocking, like you had that little, it was good, it was good. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. So Jesus is continuing on with this theme around the tombs. Remember from last week's text, Will's sermon, that Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And and really what this was is it was an ironic statement by Jesus. He was saying that the scribes and the Pharisees are just like the tombs they whitewash, outwardly beautiful and clean, but inwardly dead. That's the the picture he's painting. Uh, But this time, Jesus is talking specifically about the tombs of the prophets who have gone before him uh, and before the scribes and Pharisees. So think Jeremiah, think Zechariah, think Isaiah, think of like biblical prophets. This is who he's, he's referencing here. The question, of course, is what exactly is going on? Why is he pronouncing this particular woe in this particular way? Well, I want to start with this. I think we need to remember that being a prophet is hard. (laughs) Being a prophet was not an easy job. We We can read any of the prophetic writings in Scripture and see this. But I think Jeremiah, in particular, is exemplary of this reality. 
Does anyone remember what Jeremiah was known as? The weeping prophet. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. What miserable life do you have to live to be remembered for all eternity as the weeping prophet? (laughs) The weeping prophet. And he was known as that for a reason. His job was hard and nobody listened to him. Like he was commissioned to go and preach and preach and preach. And the response was a constant not listening. It got to the point that it was so bad that he eventually wrote a book called Lamentations. If your life concludes in a book called Lamentations, it's challenging. Being a prophet was hard. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 26 to just capture a bit of a glimpse of what this reality looked like. In Jeremiah 26, I'll just read uh, verses 1 through 11 here, and, and we'll kind of capture what we're talking about. It says, at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, stand in the courtyard of the Lord's temple and speak all the words that I have commanded you to speak to all of Judah's cities that are coming to worship there. Okay, so just, just pause. Where's Jeremiah. Where's he speaking from? I just read it. The temple. Yes, the temple. He's standing in, who would be in the temple? Scribes and Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees haven't been quite formed yet, but imagine religious people. The religious people are going to be there. So this is the, the audience. This is the surrounding. He's in the temple. Religious people and practices would be taking place. He says, do not hold back a word. Perhaps they will listen in turn each from his evil way of life, so that I might relent concerning the disaster that I plan to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. Now remember, Jeremiah, who's he prophesying against? His people, Judah, right? Verse four, you are to say to them, This is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me by living according to my instruction that I set before you and by listening to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you time and time again, though you did not listen, I will make this temple like Shiloh. I will make this city an example for cursing for all the nations of the earth. Wow. The priests, the prophets, And all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the temple of the Lord. When he finished the address, the Lord had commanded him to deliver to all of the people. Immediately, the priests, the prophets, and all the people took hold of him, yelling, You must surely die. How dare you prophesy in the name of the Lord? This temple will become like Shiloh, and this city will become an uninhabited ruin. Then all the people crowded around Jeremiah at the Lord's temple. When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went from the king's palace to the Lord's temple and sat at the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's temple. And then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man deserves the death sentence because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Guess what would eventually happen to Jeremiah? He would die. He was killed. Scholars believe that he died somewhere in Egypt by being stoned. And Jeremiah's fate wasn't uncommon among the prophets. Why? Because the prophets, the, the, the Lord's prophets, I mean, obviously you have, you have two different kinds of prophets happening here in Jeremiah, right? Because it says the priests and the prophets came against Jeremiah. So you have one prophet who's speaking truth and others who obviously are not. Uh, and they... they But the prophets, the Lord's prophets, confronted the disobedience of Israel and called them to repentance. They did things like, as we see in Jeremiah 26, denouncing the temple and the worship being done in and around the temple. And the people of Israel didn't like this. And thus, they made a habit of killing the prophets. And so Jesus is calling attention to the fact that it was the ancestors or fathers of the scribes and the Pharisees who did this. This is what's informing What's happening here in Matthew chapter 23? So, what it seems like, it seems that the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were able to recognize 
that the killing of the prophets by their fathers was wrong. Right? They're able to make this connection. They also recognize that the prophets weren't properly honored in their death and burial, which was a big deal for Jewish people. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day were taking it upon themselves to clean up the graves in an attempt to honor the prophets. And so this is what the reference to the building of the tombs and decorating the graves is about. There's this recognition. They see, oh, the prophets were, were wrongfully killed. They weren't properly honored in their burial. We should do something about it. And so the prophets and scribes in Jesus' day are taking it upon themselves to do something about it. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says this. He says, quote, with the advantage of hindsight, they can see the slaying of the prophets for the evil thing that it was. Their building of the tombs seems to be a way of proclaiming how much better they were than those who put the prophets to death. Okay, so we're building into what's, what's happening. So in essence, the scribes and Pharisees believe, no doubt with sincerity, that they are making up for the wrongs of those who went before them. Furthermore, there's no reason to question their sincere belief that were the prophets presently among them, they would respond differently than their fathers did. Like they, they legitimately believe that. And we have no reason to question otherwise. However, what they aren't seeing is that they're actually blinded by their distance from what their fathers did, and thus they can't see that they are doing the very same thing. In other words, they're just, they just kind of have this historical vantage point, so to speak. And they're just like, well, we, I mean, we would never do that, not recognizing that they are indeed doing it. And so this is, this is exactly what Jesus sees, and this is what Jesus calls out. You see, Jesus tells them that they are actually testifying against themselves. By, by declaring that they, that they wouldn't do what their fathers did, they're actually testifying against themselves that they, they are doing what their fathers did. And how, how's, how's this happening? Well, they've already rejected John, right? The beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. They rejected the prophet John. Okay? And they're currently rejecting Jesus, a prophet, the prophet. And they will, in the future, reject the church. As we'll see in a moment, a prophetic voice as well. Thus, Jesus' words to them are that they are just like their fathers. In fact, they're worse off. The idea of the text, when Jesus says to fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins, is that rather than honoring the prophets, they're actually finishing the job that their fathers started. And Jesus, in essence, says, just go ahead, just finish it. Here's where, they, here's where they started. You might as well just finish it up completely. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, says it like this. He says, quote, they admit they are linked by ancestry to the most wicked in Israel's history, and they exhibit by their current rejection of Jesus their actual spiritual kinship to the rebellious Israelites of old. In a bitterly ironic exclamation, Jesus orders them to go ahead and complete their dirty work. Right. So this text, man, it is, it is a stark and challenging warning. Right. Like it, it, it forces us to ponder how one can be in such seemingly close proximity to God and his people and yet be one who is actually rejecting Jesus. The text forces all of us to pause and examine whether or not we are following the way of Jesus or rejecting the way of Jesus. And, and I really do think we're intended to kind of feel some of the weight of it. And, and here's, the, here's the thing, this is so challenging, because Jesus calls out such good things. Right? It's ridiculous. <laughs> the, the scribes and Pharisees are passionate about mission and evangelism. They're, in a day when it was hard to travel across land and sea, they're traveling across land and sea to make converts. They're just converting them to their own religion and not the way of Jesus. It's a problem. They're deeply committed to God as demonstrated in their swearing of oaths. Right? They didn't see the swearing of oaths as, as negative as Jesus did, but as like this, this positive demonstration of look how committed, look how faithful we are. They're seemingly generous as they give above and beyond what they were required to give. And they go the extra mile to remain ceremonially pure 
and they are decorating the tombs of the righteous prophets from their past who were killed in an attempt to honor them. These seem to be good things. And yet, Jesus is essentially saying that just like the prophet Isaiah, that all of their righteous deeds had become as polluted garments. Is there any mercy here? I mean, that, that, like that, that's where I come to. I, I feel like I do a lot of really good things. Anyone? You can be honest. <laughs> like I, I hear this and I'm, I'm like, man, Jesus, what's, what? Like what then? What does obedience look like to you? Right? How, are we, how are we supposed to respond to this? What is lacking? Why is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees not sufficient? Well, I think we need to go back to the beginning of Matthew 23, and we'll see. Right? And what we see there is, again, the theme, it's, it's pride. You see, they, what we see there at the beginning of Matthew 23 is that they set impossibly high standards that they aren't willing to do themselves. They love their positions. They love to be honored and revered as teachers and masters. They love to be seen by others as those who are doing it right. They love the applause that the religious world gives them. But at the end of the day, that's the problem. That their motive is for themselves. Their motive is the applaud of others. And what they do, they do in their own strength. Right? The belief of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees kind of gets boiled down to this reality that they can be righteous on their own. That is religion. Their belief is that they can earn the favor of God and that they are doing a darn good job at it. But they're not. And this is being displayed ultimately in their unwillingness to serve. Remember what Jesus said, look there at verse 11 and, uh, 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So I think the question for us now then is how do we not be or become like the scribes and Pharisees? How do we instead learn to hear Jesus and obey the way of living life that he calls us to, which is our, our second point, hearing the prophets? Hearing the prophets. So obviously the issue is they're not hearing the prophets. How do we get to a place of hearing them? Okay. The scriptures are, are full of warnings regarding pride. And these warnings are most often connected to a lack of hearing. Right. This is the picture that we get of the human problem in Genesis chapter 3. Right? God spoke... In Genesis 1 and 2, you, kind of, you see this picture of God speaking. God set forth boundaries. He told humanity very clearly what they were supposed to do and what they were not supposed to do. And it was a really simple task, I, I think, I don't know, <laughs> in my mind. Like, there's actually a lot of freedom in what they could do. There's one thing that they could not do. One thing. You couldn't, just the one thing. <laughs> In their pride, they disobeyed God. They listened to Satan instead and decided that they wanted to be like God, which they already were. Like that's, that's the sad reality is that they, humans were created in God's image. Humans were more like God than anything else. But in believing the lie, they thought that there was more, something that they could do in their own time and in their own way. And so that's what they chose. And this is religion. This is the human problem. It is choosing to do our own will in our own time, not God's will in his time. And so the picture that we see of humanity in Genesis and all throughout Scripture is pride resulting in a disregard of the words of God and consequentially disobedience. That's the continual pattern. Pride, disregard of God's word, subsequent disobedience. And what we see over and over and over in Scripture is that pride is the sin beneath all sin. And pride ultimately always leads to a downfall. 
The Proverbs are particularly loaded with warnings in this regard. Here are just a few for us. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says, Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before his downfall, a person's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Those don't make me feel very good. I don't don't know about you. (laughs) So how do we posture ourselves in humility? How do we posture ourselves in humility that enables us to hear and follow the way of Jesus? How do we listen in a way that constantly uproots religion while at the same time deeply roots us in the way of Jesus? Uh, Three postures for us, I think, that enable us to continually hear. And I think we see these in the text, okay? So the first is this. The first is that we need to not assume what we would never do or become. Say it again. We need to not assume what we would never do or become. This is is the first and biggest issue that Jesus calls out in this passage. He highlights this in verse 30. Look at verse 30 again. You say, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. Do you hear the assumption there? Do you hear the the arrogance there? See, the scribes and Pharisees are living under this delusion that they would never do what their ancestors did. Yet, Jesus says they're doing exactly what their ancestors did. And so I think the question, like the application question for us here is to ask, do we recognize our own weaknesses? The scribes and Pharisees don't recognize their own weaknesses. They don't recognize their own shortcomings. And so do we recognize our own weaknesses? Do we recognize that we are prone to wander just as much as anyone else? You and I are prone to wander just as much as anyone else. Or do we believe ourselves to be strong and capable? So I was thinking about this a little bit this past week. I was kind of thinking through this text, and I can can actually vividly remember when I first got into full-time ministry, and I remember thinking about the things that I would never think or do or say. Like I can, like clearly in my head, I can imagine. I can picture it. I can remember thinking what I would never become like. I I, I remember thinking I'll never become like that pastor. I'll never get into that position with God. I'll never neglect the things that will keep me going as a follower of Jesus. And yet, now, I can look back over the past 15 plus years and see that I've done almost all of the things that I said I would never do. In far too many ways, I have become what I said I wouldn't become like. And my guess is that we've all experienced this to some degree, either in ourselves or with someone that we know. I don't want want us to get too far into thinking of other people, but perhaps, perhaps we're farther from Jesus than we ever thought that we would be personally. Like perhaps we are doing things and saying things and believing things that we thought we never would. Or perhaps we can think of that person who we never imagined would walk away from Jesus, but they have. I think another important lens for us to think through this, though, is not just individually, but but corporately, right, as a church. Because I think it's easy for us as a local body of believers to say, we'll never be like them. Or we'll never fall into that, fill in the blank, whatever it is. But doing so is nothing more than an arrogant comparison. Like, who are we as a local church to compare ourselves to other local bodies that we somehow deem to be less than us? See, I think, 
I think we need to learn to always have a check in our heart as individuals and as a body. I think we need to not be so arrogant as to presume upon what our next 5, 10, or 15 years will be like. I think it's so easy to settle and think that our character has been formed and that we are the mature Christians that we're supposed to be. But this is a horribly dangerous place to be. See, every single one of us has the ability to do what we think we would never do. And it might look like moral corruption and failure, or it might look like religious piety and arrogance. Either way, it isn't the way of Jesus. And so I guess the question here is, how do we see ourselves? Paul says not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought He also says that the strength of Christ is made perfect in his weakness. So do we see ourselves holding? Do we see ourselves as strong enough to hold on? Or do we see ourselves weak and needing to be held by Jesus? I think there's a difference. Second, we need to take on a posture of learning. You take on a posture of learning. Look, at, look again at verses 33 to 34. Jesus, in his kindness, says, snakes, <laughs> brood of vipers. So snakes and babies of snakes. <laughs> How can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So who is this? Who's, who's Jesus talking about? We know who he's talking to. Who is he talking about? Any thoughts? Okay, I'll give you the answer. It's us. It's us. It's the church. We, we are we are the prophets, the sages, and the scribes that would eventually be killed and crucified. See, Jesus is saying that he will give gifts to the church, gifts of prophecy, wisdom, and learning, prophets, sages, teachers, right, or scribes. And he's saying that the scribes and Pharisees of his day, the ones that he's speaking to in this very moment, are of such a hardened posture that they are just going to kill them too when the time comes. And of course, we read through the book of Acts and the letters in the New Testament, and what happened? That's exactly what happened. Right? The, the, church, the church is birthed, and she moves forward throughout the entirety of the Roman world. And we see on repeat that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, continually are putting to death the people of Jesus. And so they do exactly what he said they would. But what are we to make of this? Well, I think the application for us is to, once again, learn from the scribes and Pharisees. And rather than resisting a posture of learning, because that's what they're doing, we embrace a posture of learning. And here, here's why. This is what it means to be a disciple. The disciple literally means learn. It means Learner. And so we are, we are disciples to Jesus. We are apprentices under Jesus. The purpose of being an apprentice is to learn the way of our master. And our master is King Jesus. You see, this posture of learning and teaching is a hallmark of discipleship to Jesus. Why? Well, because it's precisely what Jesus says to do. Right? Matthew 28, 19. We're so familiar with it, but he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, believe it or not, we've gotten that really jacked up. Like, like, uh, we, again, we were at, the, we were at the, this conference in Boise the past week, and I'll talk more about it in a bit, but over and over, what, like, as people were trying to assess, like, well, what's, what's the challenge? What's the problem? And over and over, it was repeated. It's a discipleship problem. There's a discipleship problem. There's a discipleship problem. Because Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, how? What, what's the process? Well, he says, teaching them. Teaching. Discipleship is teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. 
And remember that I am with you always to the end of the age. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, I wish I had this up for you guys, but I don't. He has a whole chapter about how one of the distinctives of, the early, of early Christianity was that it was, quote, a bookish religion. I love that. Here, here's what he says about it. He says, quote, in the context of the Roman era religious setting, early Christianity was unusual as a bookish religion. I do not mean to emphasize the place of texts in early Christianity at the expense of other features, such as worship practices, beliefs, behavioral standards, or social reformation, nor do I ignore the value and effect of the spoken word in the Roman era and so among early Christians also. By calling early Christianity bookish, I simply assert that reading, writing, copying, and dissemination of texts had a major place, indeed a prominence, in early Christianity that, except for ancient Jewish circles, was unusual for religious groups of the Roman era. A bookish people. Sadly, I think that emphasis of Christianity has shifted. I think the overall emphasis has shifted. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. I think if we observe, though, we would see that the gospel has been reduced down to a moment in time in which we make a decision to follow Jesus. Thus, not always, but very often, we live out a form of Christianity that enables us to be Christians, but not disciples. We punch our ticket, and then game is over. We come and we sit and twiddle our thumbs. Not us, you know. No, us. The posture of learning and teaching is central to discipleship. It's not salvific. Just like anything else, it can take us off course. But by and large, I don't think this is the issue. I think the issue in the church today is actually a lack of bookishness. It's, it's a lack of, of, of engaging with the whole of our minds to love God. Right? The past few days, Abby and I were with Will and Rochelle at the Theology in the Raw Conference in Boise. It's the second year that they've done it. Uh, and it's truly, in my opinion, it's a uniquely wonderful and challenging conference. Uh, Theology in the Raw is a, it's a podcast, uh, and it's a ministry that's... Uh, been put together by Preston Sprinkle. And man, he, I, I think Preston's a great scholar. And, and he, he's able to bring people together from all sorts of Christian traditions and backgrounds. And so it just makes for a uniquely challenging environment. Like he sets up the environment to just make you go like, ugh, I don't, ugh. It's super challenging. And the overarching theme or idea, uh, kind of the tagline for theology in the raw is to think deeply and love widely. Think deeply and love widely. And I love this because I think it captures the essence of Jesus' summation of the commands to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think this is of utmost importance I think our cultural moment is demanding that we learn how to think deeply and love widely, and this is being lost on us. One of the most challenging uh, quotes, one of the most challenging things that someone said uh, is one of the the gals who spoke, I can't remember her name, but she, she ended her talk with this. She said, quote, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who can't read and write, but those who cannot learn unlearn, and relearn. Now, I initially wanted to delve more deeply into some of the specifics of the prophets and the sages and the scribes, but we don't have time. So I'll just briefly share an experience that I had while at the conference. The the last speaker, her name was Elise Fitzpatrick. How many of you have heard of Elise Fitzpatrick? She spoke, and I just, I found her to be an example of a prophetic and wise teacher. I I found her 
to be a person who captured the essence of these prophets and sages and scribes all in one that Jesus would send to his people. Uh, her talk was, it was my favorite talk. Uh, and Elise, just so you know a little bit about her, she's a 72-year-old woman who has been following Jesus for 52 years. She's written 25 books and has invited to speak and teach all over the world. Yet none of these credentials were spoken of by herself. They were part of the introduction that was given by Preston Sprinkle. It's pretty standard, right, at a conference. Elise expressed nothing of her so-called credentials. Actually, she started out by acknowledging the disruptive nature of the conference and how a lot of the things that were said can make you think to yourself, oh, I thought I was a Christian. I don't know how many times I was just challenged with that reality, like, oh, I've got some work to do. But I think one of the things that stood out to me the most about her, something that that truthfully brought me to tears repeatedly throughout her talk, was her clear and obvious brokenness and humility. She said, she's been a Christian for 50 years. 50 years as a Christian, seeing things I thought I understood, and now I'm seeing I don't understand. You see, as a 72-year-old woman who probably actually does know a thing or two, she's written 25 books after all. She, she has a degree in biblical counseling. She's no dummy. She's been around the block. She never presented herself as knowing a thing or two. She did not exude a self-righteous arrogance that so easily comes out of those who have been around for a while, from those who are aged or learned or trained. There was no sense in her of, I've been a Christian for 52 years, and so I've really got this figured out. She just exuded someone I personally would hope to be like when I'm 72 years old. Because what she, what she displayed was this reality of being more surrendered more broken, yet more in awe of God's mercy and grace. It's hard to explain with words what the experience was like, but it just, it just like flowed out of her. And I, I personally do feel like it was a holy moment in some way, shape, or form. But the point is this. She has lived a life of ups and downs. It hasn't always been up and to the right. But she's an example of a prophetic and wise teacher, and the only way that she got there, the only way that any of us get there, is by living humbly surrendered to the Spirit every single day and taking on a posture of humble learning for our entire lives. The invitation for us is, as Martin Luther once said, repent, repent, repent until my death no longer makes it necessary. Did you catch that? The whole of our lives is to be one of humble repentance until we die. Because that's the only thing that will, will make the stopping of repenting necessary. Matt Chandler was also there, uh, and he spoke, and he said something very similar It was in one of his question and answer kind of responses, and I'll just sum up what he said. He said, quote, all real discipleship is a call to submit and die to yourself. Now listen, this is what he said. He said, sanctification is slow. Death to self, turning to Christ. This is the rhythm of discipleship. It's the rhythm of, of discipleship. It is this slow, slow process in which we have not arrived, in which every single day we are called to submit to King Jesus and die to ourselves. Every day, die to self. Every day, turn to Christ. This is the rhythm. And it's in this, then, that we can take on the third posture, which is we become lead servants. From from this, we 
we go back and we capture what Jesus started with in verses 11 and 12. Again, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the picture of the upside down kingdom. And this, of course, was the posture of Jesus. Jesus, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created, took on the form of a servant. Jesus postured himself this way. This is, this is what was reiterated to us over and over and over again, is that in the kingdom, there is no position. In the kingdom, there is no hierarchy. If we would be great, we must humbly serve. This is the way of Jesus. And it's through this way that we ourselves then become a prophetic witness. And so here, this is our final point, number three, becoming and being prophets. Looking at verse 35 to 36, Jesus says, so all of the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of these things will come on this generation. I wanted to get into this more than we have time for this morning. Uh, The gift of prophecy, just so we are clear, is not dead. The concept, this concept of prophet and sage and teacher shouldn't come as any surprise to us. Remember, Paul said in Ephesians 4.12 uh, that, that God, that Jesus will give the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, right, for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the ministry, the building up of the maturing of the church. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians to earnestly desire the gift of prophecy so that we might build one another up but that's all for another sermon. That's exciting though, right? <laughs> Someday. For this morning, notice, Jesus points out that the scribes and Pharisees are witnessing to something. But it's not the kingdom of God. Rather, they're witnessing to that which will be their demise. Right? See, Jesus, he takes... And, and when he says from the, the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he's, just cap, he's capturing the whole of Scripture. He's just capturing the whole of the old, what we know as the Old Testament. And he says, all of the blood of those prophets is coming upon you. Now, that's not us. He says very specifically, what does he say? What's it say? This generation. Right? He's not talking about our generation, and that's important. That's going to set up the next several weeks for us in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus makes very clear that judgment is coming upon them. That's what is being witnessed to here. But here the question is for us, is, is what is our witness? And what is our prophetic voice? It needs to be a call to humble sacrifice of Jesus. That our concern as a church, okay, let's do it like this. The church has been given a collective witness. We have collectively been given a prophetic voice. Right? And so therefore, in light of that, it is not our concern to point out all of the things that are wrong out there. Our concern is here. That's what the prophets did what the prophets did. And so are we, as disciples of Jesus, living lives of submission to and sacrifice to our king? It's in light of, of his finished work that we then become this prophetic witness to the world around us that becomes captivating that, that, it, that becomes something that people desire and want to be a part of. And when given the opportunity, we didn't, we didn't speak the truth of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the humble sacrifice of Jesus. 
Jesus died and rose from the grave so that we would be this witness. Now the call for us is to submit, to die to ourselves, and to turn to Jesus. And that call is to do it today, tomorrow, the next day, the next, and the next, and so on, until we die or Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the challenge that we are met with here in these woes. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the the challenge to our own religiosity. Uh, More than anything, we're, we're thankful, Lord, for just the gift and the grace of Jesus entering into human history, leading as a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I pray this morning that we would, as your people, just be drawn in to the, this beautiful reality, that we would delight to be a people who are laying down our lives, submitting, surrendering, repenting day in and day out, turning to you, Jesus, day in and day out until death makes it unnecessary. May we worship you now in light of the reality of your resurrection. It is in your good name that we pray, amen.